Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here with us today. We've got a lot of things to talk about, and uh, we're going to be talking today about um, home sales. I mean, home sales, come some changes there we're going to talk about. Uh, durable goods, uh, that came out. We, we always watch the economy, how the economy is going. Durable goods is a very important uh important factor and pay decline this is something we've not seen in years so we're starting to see uh signs of pay declining yeah i'm gonna say before we get into that's good for inflation but uh as always hey you want to join the show you got a stock you're looking at buying selling or holding again i say stock we call them equities small business small pieces of large companies but join the show here phone numbers 833-288-0973 again that's 833-288 Zero nine seven three, and uh, before we get into it, uh, yesterday they had uh, the Jackson Hole meeting uh, with uh, Chairman Powell, and went okay. Um, I, I thought he's going to be more negative, but he, he seemed to be more neutral. What I kind of interpreted it as, yeah. I mean, they keep saying they have work to do, right? And I, you know, inflation's still above their target, so in theory, yeah, there, there's still work to do. But I, I guess now there's still like a fifty fifty chance that they increase rates one more time in November, and I just. I feel like a it. broken record, but <laughs> it, it's just month or meeting after, not month after month, meeting after meeting. It's like, I don't think they need to raise rates. And then they go ahead and raise rates. And it, it's just, oh, at some point, we're going to be right. Right. <laughs> it's right. just, well, and that, one, one, what, what month they paused? It was a, previous, uh, it was the most recent one, I right, believe. Right. Yeah. And then they paused actually during the banking issues as well. Yeah. That's so what that, was. that was the one. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is one thing we tell people too is when you try and look at, I'm going to say the macroeconomic, and you try and base your investment decisions off what you think the Fed is going to do. It's the silliest thing you can oh, do yeah. because it, it's you could be wrong on what you think is going to happen, and then you could be wrong about how the stock market's going to react to what actually happened at the meeting. I, <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy, and that that's why it's so important to just ignore this outside noise and focus on the businesses. I mean, because if you're trying to play macroeconomics, it just, it doesn't work. And, and Chase, when people come in for a presentation to see if they want to use us to manage your money, we show them that this one slide that shows that if you miss just the 10 best days over the last 15 years, your return is cut in half. Yeah. And and that's why people don't do well in investing. And we know we, we've had bad days. We know it. But you don't know when they're going to happen, and when you think it happened, it doesn't. And when it it does happen, you didn't think about it. Just don't do that. That's why we do what we do: is buying these businesses at great prices, and that's why I do the radio show, the newsletter, everything else we do is to try to help people out. But it's just uh, you cannot try to predict what they're going to do, and that's why when we're looking at buying a business, we actually say, okay, should we wait for the earnings to come out? Should we not wait for the earnings to come out? Oh, should we wait for this to happen? Should we wait for the strike to happen? Well, if it doesn't happen, you've got to look at the business and say, look, I'm holding this for at least three to five years. You know, could be wrong for uh, some time period, maybe, you know, six months, whatever, because a strike did happen. But what about three, five years down the road? You're going to miss more 
then you're going to hit right by trying to guess. Yeah. I mean, that's why the the philosophy we have is you're buying businesses and there's going to be difficult time periods. I mean, you know, uh, I was going to say a lot of people are in business and a lot of our listeners are right. business owners. And, and you know, as a small business owner, or even if you're not a small business owner, you work at a company, you know that there's going to be difficult time periods. Yeah. You know that every business is going to go through a slowdown. Every business is going to hit some, you know, difficult period in the economy. And you just have to be realistic with yourself. Is it going to stay in that doldrum and that slowdown forever? No. 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 And that's why you have to look through the noise and, and look through the longer term to make sure you have sound companies. Well, let's move on to uh, home sales because uh, existing home sales fell 2.2% in the month of July from June. Compared to 2022, sales were down 16.6% and homes sold at the slowest July pace since 2010. Uh, demand has definitely been hit by rising interest rates. And on Monday, the average interest rate on a 30-year mortgage rose to 7.48%. This was the highest level since November 2000. It will be interesting to see how home sales are impacted in reports over the next couple of months. The existing home sales are based on closings, which means these contracts are for the current report were likely signed in May and June. When the rate was lower than seven and a half percent, it's crazy to see that that keep climbing there. But the supply of homes has also been a heavyweight on the sales levels, as there were just one point one one million homes for sale at the end of July. This is down fourteen point six percent compared to last July, and is the lowest level since nineteen ninety nine. Now, looking compared to pre COVID levels, there are about half as many homes available for sale. While the tight inventory has depressed the sales rate, it has also kept prices elevated, and there was actually a 1.9% increase in the median price of a home compared to last July. That just flies in the wrong direction. I mean, prices are up, people can't afford them. Um, that has to change. I mean, supply demand fa- forces will, will eventually come in. I, I hope they don't come in too large. But, well, uh, but the thing you have to realize is it's almost like a false number. And I'm going to go kind of way off topic here almost to try and make the same point. There's the, the Vietnamese EV company VinFast, and they've only released like something like 1% of the, the shares outstanding. Right. Well, their stock went up like 100% in a day, and then it <laughs> fell like 20%. And they now have like a market cap, I believe, like $100 billion, which is larger than you know Ford, GM, all the big players. But the reason is because the supply of the shares is so small. If they were to all of a sudden release, let's say, 60% of the shares to actually trade on the market, you wouldn't have those wild swings. So what you're saying is that if rates came back down, um, the number of homes being sold would be larger, so therefore the sample would be better and probably be down. But because there's only a few homes being sold, you're getting this increase of 1.9%, which is only based on a few homes. Because, as you said, the the problem's affordability, and people just can't afford homes at these levels. But the thing is, the supply is so small, so those people that are still buying homes, those are the ones that can afford it, so they're the ones buying them, but all of a sudden you put more homes out for sale, the affordability really kicks in because nobody can afford it. Right. So that is, I think, the issue. And I know there's, um, you know, people that say, "Well, if interest rates fall, demand is there, so home prices are going to skyrocket." But my concern on the other end of that is, well, if interest rates fall, are more people going to say, "Okay, now I can actually get out of my mortgage and buy something else"? Right. So then, with the supply of homes increase, and as you said, you actually get a real sample 
of what the true demand and supply is of the housing market because this just it's just crazy yeah yeah and then, and you want about the home builders <clears throat> i mean the home builders have done pretty well over the past gosh few years but eventually that's going to change and i haven't looked at one we, we sold ours a while ago but i haven't looked at home builder lately but i would imagine that their valuations have to be kind of on the high side maybe maybe not yeah or i mean earnings expectations could be quite elevated because sometimes analysts believe that it's just going to keep lasting like this. And, I mean, this is the perfect scenario for home builders. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, because they're a smaller part of the market. So pretty much everything they're building is selling, and they get the benefit of the higher prices, and they can also buy down rates for people that get into their homes so they can kind of reduce some of that problem with the higher interest rates. I mean, it is a fantastic environment for these home builders, which I think over the next three to five years, it, it won't look like this. I, I, I do have to say to keep the price of home up that they're selling, they do have to give away more incentives like, yep. oh, we'll give you a free landscaping. Oh, we'll give you a free drapes or whatever the incentive is. So it's costing them more to get the same price or raise that price. So it's it's is going to come back to hurt them a little bit, I think, down the road. So we'll see. So let's talk about the durable goods orders <clears throat> because the headline number for durable goods orders may worry some and give them reason to question the strength of the economy. But as always, you have to look deeper into those numbers. The headline showed orders fell 5.2% in the month of July, but much of this decline came from Boeing. Orders for commercial planes can be extremely volatile. In the month of July, they soared 71%. Yeah, and actually, that was in the month of June, they increased 71%. Did I and, say, and then in July, they fell 44%. Did I, did I miss say that? Well, you said in July, they increased 71%. So in June, they increased 71%. <laughs> How did I do that? I, okay. You know, it's okay. So just to, to give people the numbers right. one more time, June... The commercial planes orders were up 71%, and then July they were down 44%. So, again, just huge volatility in those numbers. And if we look at actually excluding the volatile transportation sector, which does include automobiles and planes, well, that actually increased 0.5% in the month. And excluding volatility created by Boeing, durable goods orders have now increased three months in a row. With all the volatility from COVID, the wild ups and the downs that we've seen in manufacturing and, and you know different areas of the economy, I do believe that the manufacturing sector and the overall goods economy can continue to strengthen from a cha challenge level over the last year. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, it's just something that you got to look at the numbers and understand what's going on because if you react to the number, the headline number, you could make poor decisions. And and I again, we keep continuing to say we're not in a boom economy, but we're not in a bust economy either. We're an economy that's kind of ticking along at a you know, slow pace, but ticking along. Yeah, and, and what you have to understand is, you know, the service economy has really kept up the broader economy, but the goods economy has really struggled. Well, I just don't see the goods economy really falling much further. So even if that flat lines and services comes down just a little bit, we can still have growth in the economy because the goods economy has already been, I'm going to say, crushed. Right. Because we've talked about this before, but you have to understand the durable goods, everybody was buying these back in 2020, 2021, because they, they couldn't go anywhere and they had all this extra cash. It's like, well, I can't go on vacation. So I don't know, I guess I could buy a new refrigerator and get it delivered to me. Yeah, I guess I can get a new laptop get it delivered to me. I don't need to leave the house. <laughs> so all these durable goods were, were purchased in 2020, 2021. And what should be happening here is as that huge decline we've seen over the last couple of years kind of flattens, 
Now going forward, you can start to build up again in that durable economy, and those durable goods will start to kind of fade. And all yeah. of a sudden, they're three, four, five years old. It's like, gosh, I need to replace that. And then you have a more normalized economy. COVID just really created a very strange situation where you had these wild peaks and valleys. And I think we just need a little bit of normalization to get back to really being able to understand you know, and see good analysis there. Well, well I mean, COVID actually created, uh, it pulled demand forward yep. is what it did because normally you wouldn't buy this stuff, but since you were staying at home, you changed your purchasing thing. And that's why during COVID, you saw travel decline dramatically. Now we're seeing the opposite to where you're seeing people traveling, spending money on hotels, travel, uh, and less on, you know, home furnishings and, and everything else. So the, that's why you got to understand how things are going on. And and because uh, travel is way up, still up. I, I don't know how much longer that's going to last, but it's still... People still want to get out and travel. Yeah, I know, I know I'm actually going to Europe later this year, and I just swear, you know, on social media, everybody has gone to Europe this year. Like that, you well, know, I'm leaving on tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's just I, I keep seeing, and it it just seems like a popular thing to do right now. Which travel, travel. I know Europe has been, you know, hit kind of hard as well, obviously, and hopefully is bolstering their economy a little bit. It should. I mean, because you go over there and you spend money, you eat out, and everything, so it should help uh, their economy. That's why I always say the United States does really still control the world. Because what is the saying? If we catch a cold. The world gets pneumonia, I think is what the saying is, because we do spend a lot of money in it. And imports, which are changing, we'll, we'll talk more about that another day. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we still control the world economy to some degree. Um, all right. Uh, oh, let me get out the phone numbers uh, ahead of time here, too. So if you want to call and get that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. Phone numbers here, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288. 0973. Let's talk about the pay decline because uh, we said a few years ago that eventually workers would be coming back to the office and they would not have the same leverage for getting higher pay. Well, that time may be just around the corner. According to ZipRecruiter, the average pay for the majority of jobs has declined from last year with some of the steepest declines being seen in technology, transportation, and other jobs that had big hiring back about two years ago. Now, ZipRecruiter conducted a survey in July with about 2,000 employers, and the results revealed that nearly half of the employers said they had reduced the pay for recent job openings. I don't see this reversing. I, I think in the next year or two, we will see further declines in pay as competition for jobs comes back to a more normal level. Again, just kind of going back to what we were saying, just we need the economy to normalize from yep. these wild <clears throat> swings to actually get back to a more consistent and understandable level. And, and I do remember people saying, oh, you don't get it. People are never going to go back to the office. And we said, no, things will change. And uh, the employers will get people back as the economy slows. And we are seeing that happening. Uh, they are saying now we'll come back to the office uh, at least three days a week, maybe four days a week. So we're seeing that change back to it. And it doesn't happen in one day, one week, one month, even sometimes one year. It happens over time. And if we do, if, if the Federal Reserve does increase rates too much and does hurt the economy uh, and the economy goes down, you have an employment go from what three five they're talking to four five four six you'll see that change even more because that does put the employers in charge saying look you need to get in the office because we need to be more productive well and one of the more ironic things is one of the companies that i saw asking people to come back 
Zoom. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that, that, that is amazing to me. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not a full back in office thing. It's like a hybrid type model. And I didn't see how many of their employees are asking to come back. But it just, again, shows that not everybody can work from home. And, and if Zoom is asking people, and even if it's a smaller part of their <laughs> you know workforce to come back to the office, it's like, yeah, not everybody can do this whole work from home thing. Yeah, and, and it is ironic, Zoom. Stay, <laughs> they're from the home, one. but you need to come to the office for us. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's good for their PR. You know? Yeah, no, we should do all these Zoom meetings. Uh, but you're asking people to come back to the office. Huh, interesting. A <laughs> little, little different there, but yeah, that's it, it is amazing. So uh, this information comes from our newsletter that we, we write, uh, many different topics. And some of the other topics we talked about uh, in the newsletter that went out uh, yesterday uh, was ad-free streaming. We talked about home prices, streaming usage the housing market, hot sauce price, and even we talked about NVIDIA a little bit, what's going on with their craziness, we'll call it. Uh, if you want that newsletter, it is free. Just go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. It's right in the middle of the page. Sign up for it, free. It goes out uh, on Friday at 5 o'clock, and you can see uh, at that tab uh, the past newsletters as well. So, all right, phone numbers here, 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go out to San Diego and speak with Val. Val, you're in the Smart Investor, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Recently, took a dive on uh, reduced guidance, and I'm wondering whether the dive is steep enough now to where it might be a good buy. You know, and it's something I've been kind of looking at because retail has been beaten up a little bit. Macy's is, a, I, I think, one of the stronger retailers. I'm, we'll look at the numbers here for you. But it's something that uh, I think could be pretty good, except I do see that the the short on the float is nearly 10%, which shows me that a lot of people think it's going to go down lower. They do about 83% uh, in institutional ownership. Uh, by the way, the symbol on Macy's is M, as Macy's. Uh, we do see a very low P.E. ratio of 4.5 versus 19.8. Price to sales, 0.1 versus 0.4. Price to tangible book value, 1.1 versus 7.5. And price to cash flow, also very good, 2.1 versus 6. Now, there's no peg ratio, uh, which is disappointing, but it's nothing for the industry or Macy's. We do see over the last year, earnings did decline by 26.2%, industry down 13.1%, so that's not good. Sales for Macy's were down 3.9% when the industry was up 7.3%. And this is the industry of department stores, so they are competing pretty close to what they do, so disappointing news there. Uh, we do see that they have a nice dividend yield of 5.5% and only use 16.6% of their earnings have paid it out. So that's a very, very good positive there. Looking at the balance sheet, current ratio 1.2, same as the industry. Debt to equity 1.4, that's below the industry at 1.8, but at 1.4, I start getting a little bit worried uh, that they could be getting too too heavy in debt. Uh, net profit margin checks in at 4.2, that's double the industry at 2.1. Return on equity, very good, 25.1 versus 7.7, and return on invested capital 11.9. Versus F point nine. Chase, what do you got? Yeah, so current price here for Macy's, well, it's twelve dollars and eight cents. Uh, looking at the fifty-two week low, it's eleven dollars and eighty-six cents. So I'm guessing it hit that. Yep, hit that yesterday in, in trading news. And then the fifty-two week high is twenty-five dollars and twelve cents. So I mean, it, it's definitely been hit quite hard. I see year to date, the stock's down about forty percent. 
If we go forward, though, to January 2025, they do report on a fiscal calendar, uh, or sorry, a fiscal basis rather than a calendar year basis. I see estimated earnings per share of $2.84. I mean, it gives us a target sell price of $47.14. I mean, it's trading at a forward P.E., of under four and a half times. And, and actually, I'm looking at the earnings over the last 90 days uh, for February 2025. They're actually down about 19%. So they are seeing worse things for this company going forward, but they're still projected to make money. And, and I think they have a great online system as well. Um, you, you know, I think the question you asked Val was, is this the bottom? <laughs> Tough to say. No, it's, I didn't ask that. I, I wondered whether it might be a good buy to look for in the in the near future. Okay, okay, I misunderstood that or misinterpreted that, but but I mean, I mean, I I almost say based on the numbers, forward and past Macy's right now is a good buy. Plus, you click that five and a half percent dividend. Um, I just have a hard time thinking that um, something is going to change tomorrow. You might have to be patient with this, and I don't like the debt level. I guess you'd want to when you're investing in this company see what the debt is coming due because they could have a big uh, big uh, bond coming due in the near future at a higher interest rate that would really hurt their earnings going forward. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to disagree. So you're going to have some thinking there about <laughs> on what you want to do. But, you know, when I look at a, a company like Macy's, I mean, the value is there. The numbers look great. But my concern is, is it a great business? Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, that is something you have to look at saying, is Macy's going to potentially grow from here. And I, I just, I feel like retail is so fickle. And the thing that worries me about a business like Macy's is how much of this direct-to-consumer business are a lot of these brands like Nike, like, you know, the, the uh, Michael Kors, the, the coaches, the businesses that they're getting product for, from, how much more are they going to try and push and direct to consumer? It could really hurt Macy's going forward, and all of a sudden, the earnings estimates could fall from 284 down to they start having cash flow problems, and then they turn into another Sears. The retail business just it, it scares the heck out of me for businesses, the department stores. And actually, I did see something from Nike saying that they are going to push more back towards the retailers uh, because they saw better sales there. So. It, I don't see retail going away. I, yeah. And I, I got to say, I could be a little bit biased because it seems at least once or twice a week, I show a package for my wife showing up from Macy's and she gets some great deals there, uh, great clothes they have. Uh, it's a very good value. So um, <laughs> it's funny. So my wife hates Macy's. So that, that maybe that's the, the discrepancy here. <laughs> I don't well, know. well, there's a difference of uh, what, <laughs> 20 some years, <laughs> I guess. So. <laughs> but I, so I mean, there's just thoughts that I would have there, Val, if I was looking at getting into retail is, is, is this a growing industry or could this become a dying industry where the numbers look great, but the businesses go the route of the Polaroid camera? And even though the PE looks strong, but all of a sudden in five years, their earnings is just not there anymore. Right. And and I, I'm going to say I think it's a good buy as long as the debt issue is, good, is not going to get worse. I'll put it that way. Uh, and the cash flow is going to pay that debt. So And kind of just on the subject here, but I, I would want to understand more about the whole shrink issue, the you know because theft has been oh, a huge issue for these terrible. retailers, and yeah. I, I think it's it's not a long term issue. This is something that should get resolved over time, hopefully through maybe politicians start actually having some more regulations around stealing and not allowing people to take stuff 
uh, up to a thousand dollar cap because this is just hurting retailers and and the retailers are gonna find a way around it at some right. point but in the meantime it, it, it's crushing them and it, it's it i know it's hurt the dick sporting goods it's hurt macy's it's hurt several other retailers target has talked yeah. about it so i mean it, it could be i'm going to say a short-term fixable problem as well for retail that it could benefit growth down the road so i mean there's a lot of different thoughts with, with macy's that you have to consider i'd say yeah yeah, it's just such a good buy at these levels. Um, some things to consider, but I I I, I like it, um, but I do have my reservations. So you gotta gotta get through that, Val. Already? Well, I've never invested in retail before, and I don't think I will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Val, thanks for calling. You have a good one. <laughs> bye bye. All right, that does open the phone line eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three. Two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go out to Tim in Mission Valley. Tim, you're on the Smart Vest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Uh, thanks so much. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, check out uh, the company DHI, the Home Builders. Yes. Speaking of new, um, just thinking of uh, buying, and. Uh, Want to know what you think? Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought this one up because we talked about this early in the show about home building and what's going to happen. So now we can actually look at a home builder to see what their numbers look like. Uh, coming again is uh, DH uh, or DR Horton. Symbol is DHI. They're in the residential construction uh, float, not very much, 3.5%. Institutional owned about 88%. Good PE, uh, 8.2, just slightly above the industry at 8. Price of sales, 1.2. Industry 0.9, uh, price to book value 1.8 versus 1, and price of cash flow kind of expensive, 11.8 <clears throat> versus 8.5. <clears throat> we do see that the earnings uh, over the last year are down, well, it surprises me, they're down 9.5%. The industry is up 16.9. So I'd, I'd want to find out why did Dior Horton uh, earnings fall last year when the industry was up? Did they? Take some runoffs. What what happened there? Uh, their sales are up eight point three percent. Not as good as the industry, up twelve point six. And we do see the analysts got a five year growth rate of a negative five point six percent. The industry only a negative point two percent. So something's going on with Dr. Horton here that you got to really look into. They do pay a dividend, or uh, is a dividend yield point nine percent. Use seven percent earnings to pay that out. Look at the balance sheet. Current ratio twelve versus eight point five. And I do believe. Uh, remembering builders, they have something different on their balance sheet that gives them a lot more liquidity. And I think they include the inventory in there or something, something strange on them. Do you remember? I, I do remember. It was, it was strange that one of the home builders we held kind of did accounting a little bit different yeah. than some of the other home builders. So there, there was always a discrepancy between their numbers and the, the industry because of the way they, they carried inventory, I believe it was. So I, I think because be. they sell the homes, they get to put the inventory and the current ratio in their Obviously, home is very expensive, so yeah. I think that's what it is. But uh, you, you'd want to look a little bit close at Tim to understand why it's 12. But the industry is at 8.5. And then uh, we, we got uh, debt to equity 0.3, same as the industry. Net profit margin 14.1 versus 10.9. Return on equity 22.5 versus 19.6. So looking pretty good. Chase, what do you got? Yeah, so current price here for DR Horton. Again, the ticker symbol is DHI. It's $114.94. 52-week low here, $66.01. And the 52-week high, $132.30. Now, if we go forward for DR Horton, again, we go out to September 2024, reporting on a fiscal basis. Estimated earnings per share is $13.54. It gives us an attractive target sell price of $224.76. So it looks attractive from a valuation perspective. Trades at about 4 
multiple of eight and a half times. So that's appealing. Now, the concern I have with home builders is, as we kind of talked about earlier in the show, they're in like a perfect type environment right now. Right now. Is two, three years down the road, things start to slow down. All of a sudden, their growth slows. The margins start to compress. That multiple could expand quite quickly. And if you look at earnings for home builders, it's a very cyclical industry. So you have to be careful during the best times. Home builders are not going to hit a PE multiple of, let's say, 16, 17 times. It's just not going to happen, most likely. During the downturns, when earnings are tough, their PEs could skyrocket to you know, right. 30, 40, 50 times because the earnings are so cyclical and so volatile. So I'd be very careful looking at this on just a PE-type basis. And you've got to understand that things are pretty darn good for the home builders right now, and things could turn over the next few years. Yeah, and actually, I see in the earnings estimates from the analysts, uh, they're up reverse of Macy, uh, Macy's, uh, they're up about 22% of last 90 days. So they're seeing better and better things for them. I will say too, uh, when we had that home builder, they have changed things. They used to carry a lot of land yeah. and inventory and that would really hurt them when things slowed down. They now do it a little bit differently. You'd want to check on DR Horton to see if they're doing the same thing, but to where they have options to buy that land. So they're less committed. On the other hand too, that you know, that could hurt them because they might have to pay a higher price for it or, you know, so uh, better. It should make the earnings more stable. More stable is, I think, what they're trying to you do. you probably don't get as big of a peak because right. you're not getting the same margin on right. that land. And, and the other thing, too, not just the same margin, but if you don't want that land, you're just going to lose your option. Yeah. So it's going to cost you money. So I, I just think it's the, the, the time for a home builder has probably passed to buy them. I just don't see great things going forward. And we have seen huge huge increases in the price of home over the last, uh, what, four years here. So nothing keeps going up like that. And I think I do see problems with the home builders at least in the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah. All right? Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Thanks so much. All right, Tim. Thanks for calling. It. Have a good one. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That does open the phone line. 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go out to Richard in San Diego. Richard, you're on the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? I was wondering about Ford stock. Um, they're looking at a potential strike with the UAW, and it looks like they're demanding a lot, a big, a big increase in wages. And uh, it sounds like their EV sales or, or production is costing them a lot of money. And their quality control lately hasn't been so good. Well, I think we say don't buy the stock. No. <laughs> <laughs> I own it. <laughs> oh, you own it? Okay, that was my next question. Do you own it? So, well, let's take a look at the numbers for you and kind of talk more about Trump because there are some headwinds coming up for all the automakers, such as the strike, which, uh, Chase, you had some good comments before the show on the strike. But uh, let's talk about Ford Motor Company. Their symbol is F, uh, the industry's auto manufacturers. Uh, float is only 4.3%, not too bad. So I'm kind of surprised on that number. Eastern ownership is a 56.2%. P.E. ratio for Ford, 11.6 uh, versus industry, not material. Price to sales, 0.3 versus 0.8. Price to book value, 1.1 versus 1.5. And price to cash flow checks in at 3.7, well below the industry at 13. Now, the peg ratio, nothing for Ford. Uh, the industry is at 9.4. 
Uh, earnings over last year are down 64.4%. The industry is up 3.9%. I didn't know Ford's earnings were down 64%. You'd want to find out what that was. That's surprising to me. Sales did rise by 14.7% uh, for Ford, but not as good as the industry at 206 The five-year estimated growth rate from the analysts, a negative 1.8% for Ford but a pause of 8.1%. I think those numbers, as I'm talking about, are coming a lot maybe from Tesla, who is now in the uh, auto, auto manufacturing industry. Uh, dividend yield, 5%. They use 58%. They're earning to pay that dividend out. The balance sheet, current ratio, 1.2 versus 1.5. Debt equity is high, 3.3 uh, versus 0.5 for the industry. Net profit margin, 2.4 versus 5.9. And Return on equity, not as good as I'd like it to be, 9.5%. Uh, I usually like to see it somewhere around 15. Chase? Yeah, so current price here for Ford, $11.91. Uh, 52-week low is $10.37, and the 52-week high is $15.42. And uh, I guess we'll just kind of share the, the comments I had beforehand. Uh, don't want people to be wondering what I was saying about the auto manufacturers. Or forget about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, you know, I kind of talked about this on a previous show, but, you know, the UAW, their demands are asking essentially to increase labor costs at like $80 billion for each of the auto manufacturers over the life of the next contract. So you break that down over a four-year period, that's about $20 billion a mm -hmm. year. Well, they're complaining that it's not fair that the auto manufacturers had a combined profit of, I believe it was like $21 billion last year. Right. So you're going to take it from $21 billion and you're going to make them pay $60 billion <laughs> or total each year? I, I, you're going to destroy these companies. And I still really believe this This strike is going to be a short-term issue. I believe there's going to be a lot of volatility in these stocks because the UAW is going to come out and say, oh, that's not fair, and they're going to have these high demands. They're saying they're not going to cave. I don't think the auto manufacturer is going to cave because they know if they caved on those demands, they'd be out of right. business in two, three years. Now, what I look at as well on that is there's 11 weeks, I guess, of strike pay that the UAW has. Pay. yeah, And... That doesn't include health insurance or COBRA, which they'd have to be also paying for at that time. So that should actually increase the burn rate on that. So it should be less than 11 weeks of what they have available to their, their, their strikers or their union members. And I just I know that the auto manufacturers, they're going to have increased labor costs, but I just there's no way they can afford the, the demands that the UAW is going after. So I think you're going to hear a lot of negativity. The stocks are going to be volatile, but I think come, you know, January of next year will kind of be through the noise. <laughs> you won't have to really worry about it, I think, for four years. <laughs> and, and, and people don't want to strike during the holidays. They, no. they, they want their job. They want to buy presents and so forth. So I, so I think we could have a strike, but it could be resolved by late October, maybe early November. So. And, and, and they're asking for, you know, close to a 50% pay increase, essentially, yeah. over the four-year period. If I'm, and I'm just trying to think logically here, is if I'm a union member and the auto manufacturers say, Oh, we'll give you a, a 20, 25% pay increase. I, I'd do that, you know, and then all yeah. of a sudden you start to create some rifts between union members and the UAW, and then hopefully there, there gets a deal that's resolved. But there's no way they're going to have all those demands come on through because it would destroy the auto companies. And quite frankly, if they fell and they caved on these demands, I, I would sell these even if the stock went down 30 40% because there's no way they can afford this yeah, over the next they, four years. They'll not be profitable. But I do want to give the numbers. Kind of went off on a side tangent there for Ford. I go out to December 2024. I see estimated earnings per share of $1.89. It does give us a very attractive target sell price at $31.37. So, I mean, the value is there for Ford. You know, I, I think they do have some good products in their auto lineup. I 
think as long as we can get through the strike with a fair deal for everybody, mm-hmm. I, I think this would be a, a good buy at this level. Yeah, and I think you said you hold it. Is that correct, uh, Richard? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, too, that we didn't talk about was the political side. I mean, the president does not want, you know, the unions to strike. He doesn't want to destroy the economy. So there's a lot of factors there. And, and the, the gut feeling is, I'm going to sell this before the strike. We had the same feeling in our auto manufacturer. But we said, no, we know it's going to be a bad short time period for our auto manufacturer. But we think we'll be better down the road. And as Chase said, though, if they do agree to that, which I don't think they will, that high thing, we probably would sell it at a loss there. But um, uh, same thing for Ford. We saw good numbers. And I do see their earnings were up, what, 14% estimate over the last nine days. So the analysts aren't seeing a bad thing with a strike either. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, I would say hold. How much percent does it make up on your portfolio? Uh, maybe about 2%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you'll be fine. Just, just be prepared for a rocky road. I'll put yeah. it that way. All right. Okay. Thank you. All right, Richard. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. But now it's time to talk to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson, uh, talking about tax gain harvesting. Harrison, how you doing? I'm doing well, guys. How's it going? Good, good. So let's talk about tax gain harvesting here. Yeah, so not to be confused with tax loss harvesting, which is selling a position at a loss so it can be deducted against other gains or other income. Tax gain harvesting is the opposite, where you intentionally sell a position at a gain so that you have to report it as income. Now, that seems backwards. Why would anyone intentionally want to realize extra income? Uh, Well, it depends on your tax situation. If you're in a lower tax bracket than you expect to be in the future, the tax on long-term capital gains could be less um, to realize those gains now. So, for example, if you're in the first or second tax bracket, the tax rate on long-term gains is 0%. So even if you have to sell and report that gain as income, the tax rate on that income is zero. For married couples, this is income less than around $120,000. For single filers, it's income less than $60,000. Also, when people are tax loss harvesting, they have to be careful of wash sales, which means if you sell a position at a loss and then rebuy it within 30 days, the loss is not allowed. Uh, This does not apply to tax gain harvesting, so you can sell out a gain and then immediately buy back the same position with no negative repercussions. So if you want to continue to hold that investment, you can sell it, uh, buy it back, which steps up your cost basis, which will then reduce the amount of tax you have to pay in the future um, when you do decide to get rid of it. So usually people try to defer income, but in some cases it can make to accelerate that income if you can do it at a lower rate. Um, Some things to keep in mind, tax gain harvesting may not be taxable, but it is still included in your adjusted gross income. And some things like health insurance premiums can be based on your AGI adjusted gross income, which this could reduce those premiums even if it doesn't uh, increase your taxes. Also, this can only be done in taxable accounts like trust accounts, TOD accounts, individual joint accounts, um, not retirement accounts. Um, And then usually this is something that you want to do looking at the back half of the year when you have a better understanding of your um, overall income. Um, And then lastly, I think this is something that is viewed as an alternative to Roth conversions. With a Roth conversion, you're accelerating income from a retirement account 
ideally at a lower tax rate than uh, what it would be in the future. With tax gain harvesting, it's the same type of thing, just a different account and income source. And usually you only want to utilize one of these strategies in a given year. Um, they're taxed differently, but both are included in AGI in both. The Roth conversions will push up those capital gains into the higher tax bracket that you were trying to avoid. You, you know, and Harrison, this is when a financial planner really is very important because I don't believe most people are going to be looking at their next year income. People usually look at the here and now, and that's why tax loss harvesting is, I don't want to say easy to do, but it's more on their mind. I don't think anyone that I can think of, and I've been doing this for 40 years, I've just talked about tax gain harvesting because you've got to think ahead a year or two, and people just don't think that way. That's, again, why a good financial planner is so important. Yeah, and I, I mean, at the end of the day, tax planning is trying to keep your taxable income as low as possible, as consistently as possible, looking forward into future years. It's not just about this year or last year. It's how can we bring everything down consistently low? So, you know, tax gain harvesting, again, you're realizing income, but it could be tax-free um, or taxed at a lower rate than it otherwise would be. So um, if your income is super low this year, tax gain harvesting can step up your basis at no cost, which is going to reduce your future taxes. And I'm trying to think of like a, a good example of this for people as well, but I just going to oversimplify things. But it could be like somebody that maybe they retire, they, they're living maybe off like uh, some – you know, cash that they had saved up, and but they're going to start a pension in two years, and that's now going to push them into the 15% capital gains tax bracket. So it would make sense over the next two-year period to reset the cost basis and do this tax gain harvesting for people over that two-year period. And then once you now start taking on that pension, you have less capital gains that could impact your overall portfolio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So whether it's a pension starting, whether it's required minimum distribution starting, whether um, you're going to get a raise at your job that's going to push you into a higher tax bracket, uh, whether you're going to be selling a property in future years that's going to increase your income. I mean, there's a whole a whole range of things that could happen. But, um, you know, again, you, you want to project out what your assets and your income sources are going to look like over time. And during the low spots, look at a Roth conversion, look at tax gain harvesting um, to, to kind of bring up those lower years so that your future higher years aren't pushed even higher. And I did want to say you forgot to mention one risk to this strategy is our lovely state of California. You still have to pay income tax on those gains. So. <laughs> it's still going to be taxed on the state side, uh, which that's always going to be the case. Yeah. But again, if you're in a lower tax bracket on the federal side, you're also going to be in a lower tax bracket on the state side. So um, there might be a little bit of tax to pay on the state side. Um, California just treats it as ordinary income, which most states do that. But, you know, overall, it'll still make sense um, because if you get pushed into the third, fourth, fifth, sixth bracket federally, then you're going to be pushed into the 9.3% bracket on the state side in the future. So if you can, you know, um, realize some gains now and, and then on the state side, it might only be 2%, 4%, something like that. So still, still makes sense. Great. Well, Harrison, uh, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay. Bye-bye. <clears throat> Again, that's Harrison Johnson. He's a CFP. He's our financial planner. Remember, he's on a salary. He doesn't sell any products or annuities or life insurance. He is a true fee-based financial planner. If you'd like a free consultation with him, give him a call at the office at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. 546-4306 or go to the website smartinvesting2000.com 
That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can send send him a um, email. Uh, Chase, I do see on our website, it does say free consultation. Does he pop up or just us a pop up for the free consultation? Do no, you know? if you contact us there, it actually goes to myself. So if you want to talk to Harrison, I, I get those emails get those and emails. I, I can just pass that along okay. to him. So you can click on the free consultation and say you want a, a free uh, appointment with uh, Harrison for the financial plan and we'll get that done for you. All right, phone numbers here, 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go out to San Diego and speak with Tim. Hey guys. Hey, how you doing? Good. Good morning. Good morning. Good. Good. Um, you're going to get a free plug here for Harrison. Oh, oh good. And, uh, if anybody's hearing, he's awesome. I, I, I'm 63 and I've gone through so many financial planners over my lifetime. He's the only one that stands up there and makes sense and teaches you and just doesn't say, give me your money and I'll plug it in somewhere. So anybody thinking about it, you got to, you got to talk to Harrison. I keep telling all my friends. Okay, Tim, we appreciate that. And just to confirm, that was not a paid advertisement. (laughs) No, that was not not a paid advertisement. (laughs) But I I just had to say that because I've been, uh, I, I, He's he's great. Yeah, he gets me. He gets me. Um, so I was asking about, um, in fact, I mentioned this to you, Brent, the, the other couple of weeks ago at a dinner about uh, Berkshire B. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get an analysis of that because they have a whole bunch of companies. They're almost like a mutual fund. Exactly. So I just wanted you guys to uh, analyze that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I always like to look at uh, this once in a while, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway, which is I, I don't say run by Warren Buffett because now he has his lieutenants that actually I think make more decisions than he does, but he is why we use our philosophy that I read him like 30 years ago, like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. And I really looked into value investing. It's because of Warren Buffett. But uh, it's always nice to look at uh, the Berkshire Hathaway you know, portfolio here. Uh, they are in the industry of insurance diversified because he runs this as an insurance company and does the investments in the insurance company. Uh, not much float on that, 0.7%. Uh, institutional ownership is only 65%. P.E. ratio, 9. That's below the industry at 9.7. Price of sales, 1.9 versus 1.1. Price to book value, 1.4, same as the industry. And price of cash flow, 18.1 versus 12.5. They do have a peg ratio of 0.9, nothing for the industry. Now, I looked at this. I'm very shocked on this. I don't know how they did this or why it is this way. It could have been low earnings the previous year, but the earnings show they increased by 706%, but the whole industry is up 727%. I don't know how that number is so strange because it's obviously very high. Uh, sales are up 51.1%. Industry is up uh, 47.6%. The five-year growth rate for uh, Berkshire Hathaway is 23.3. That's very attractive especially when the industry is a negative 20.2. So they're getting some good numbers here for Berkshire Hathaway. They do not pay a dividend. Uh, look at the balance sheet. Uh, there's no current ratio. Again, be an insurance company, a little bit of different accounting. Debt equity, 0.2 versus 0.4. Net profit margin, 21.6 versus 11.6. That's very positive. And we try an equity, 16.1. Versus 16. Chase, what do you got? Now, I was going to make a couple comments about Berkshire Hathaway overall as well. And it's interesting because... 
he buys or has the investment portfolio where he buys, you know, individual stocks like, you know, Apple's one of his largest holdings. But he also is, I'm going to say, a passive investor because when he bought like Geico, when he yeah. bought Seize Candy, uh, I forget which railroad, I think it's Burlington Southern or he has a railroad in there as well. It's not like he's actually running those businesses. He just buys them gets the cash flow and the people still run the business for him essentially so it is a, a very diversified business i want to say geico is probably their their big big money winner I, I would be curious what the breakdown is of of how much those companies contribute to the bottom line for the berkshire hathaway and the other thing that's interesting with the earnings on this company is they're i think they're going to be so volatile because his investment portfolio is so large that when you do the accounting on the earnings for the gains and losses on those positions it can create kind of a, a lot of volatility within the the earnings uh gains and losses in the, the total company so the accounting behind it's going to be a little bit more complex but looking at the the current price for berkshire hathaway it is 355 dollars and 93 I see the 52-week low, wow, $259.85, and the high is $364.63. Now, there's only two analysts that cover this company. I don't know if it's just because it is such a complicated business when you actually have to dive down in each business that a lot of analysts just don't give earnings estimates. But of those two analysts, I got to December 2024, I see estimated earnings per share of $18.84. Forcing gives a target sell of $312.74, trades at a forward PE of close to 19 times. So it, it's not an inexpensive stock. Yeah. And what worries me about uh, Berkshire Hathaway is that, uh, as we kind of talked to him, it is kind of like a mutual fund. Uh, Warren Buffett is pulling back somewhat. Uh, he is, what, 90? I was just looking up his yeah, age. I think he's like 90, 91 now. Um, I've seen changes on things they buy, which he never would have bought before. And he talked about it. I remember him talking about, you know, buying value companies and, and uh, really getting the deep value. That doesn't seem to be the same management style of the new gentleman coming in. I forget their names. So t- Tim, Tim Tom? and Tom, Tom and Tim and okay. Wexler and Combs. Yep. Like, I, I forget which last name goes with which first name, but but uh, they they seem to have a different philosophy, and that that's one thing when you do buy a mutual fund, it's who is managing that portfolio. I just feel that it's changing, and and it's and I can't knock it. It's done very very well over the years, but and they also did. I mean, Warren Buffett would never do foreign stuff. They've done some major investments in Japan now. I've seen and stuff. So it's not the same Berkshire Hathaway from before, um, but I I, I just. You know, I can't recommend it because I just think it's going to change in you know the next five, ten years, be a different story. And I still believe that that company has one of the biggest CEO risks and one of the biggest CEO premiums because of Warren Buffett's name. And, and don't forget Charlie Munger too. He's I, yeah, yeah. He, Charlie Munger's. I I'm hoping he makes it January. I think his birthday is January first. But yeah, yeah, born January first, nineteen twenty four. So he's ninety nine. <laughs> right. If he can make it to January first in the business, he'd be a hundred years old. Yeah. Being a part of Berkshire Hathaway, that'd, that'd be very, very impressive. And Warren Buffett is now 92. Yeah. And they do have that large position in Apple, yeah. which does kind of worry me. Apple's a great company. Oh. but uh, Warren Buffett's be... birthday is actually in four days. He'll turn 93 on August 30th. Let's send him a birthday card. Yeah, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he gets plenty of those. <laughs> so, Tim, I, I hope that helped out uh, on, on Berkshire Hathaway, you know, how we kind of look he, at it. So. Yeah, he was, uh, remember, he was anti-Apple for a long time. Yeah. 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 My concern is yes it's the ceo name so if he passes uh charlie munger is one thing but if warren buffett yeah. no, a lot of people don't know who charlie is but if yeah. he passes 
I could see this thing coming down because people just freak out, even though he's not even making these selections probably in the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah, so It's weird. Uh, one more thing before I go. Sure. Uh, I don't want to hog time, but if you can also decide maybe someday do Disney because it's at a nine-year low, and uh, I just, I'm just interested to see your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, we're getting some, some quick thoughts uh, because right now the whole entertainment industry is really getting beaten up because of the strike. It's over 100 days now. Uh, there was one company that uh, they, they didn't want to release this film because the actors can't advertise it yet. So Disney, Warner Brothers, Paramount, uh, I can't think of the other ones. Uh, Comcast. Comcast. Uh, they just have a very difficult time with this strike because it's now starting to hurt they're, they're now getting to the point where they don't have new stuff coming out. It takes, and once they come back, the writers and the actors, well, you don't have it immediately. You've got that ramp up time. So uh, Disney, I, I think, would be in the other category that it's pretty good. There's things on Disney that you got to remember they do have the theme parks and the cruise ships and stuff. But um, uh, it is, I think, I think it was a 14 year low, I believe. Yeah, we can maybe not add 14 it. Not 14-year-old, but it hit a low in 2014. Yeah, we, we can add it to a list, and actually, I know you won't be at the show next week, so I'll add it to my list, and I can cover that on next next yeah. week's show and go through the numbers. Yeah. All right, Tim? All right. Thanks, guys. And one more plug. Anybody wants to donate money to a good charity, it's uh, Shelter to Soldiers, helping out the dogs and helping out our veterans. Well, we, we were there, so we appreciate that plug as well. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, right, Tim. Bye-bye. All righty. That opens up the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Uh, while waiting for the calls to come in, let's look at uh, NVIDIA. Uh, after NVIDIA's blowout earnings report, I was surprised to see the stock has now fallen over 2%. Since the numbers came out, earnings per share of $2.70 beat the estimate of $2.09 and revenue of $13.51 billion easily topped the estimate of $13.22 billion. Uh, also here, we, we look at the guidance. It was very, very impressive as revenue in Q3 is expected to be around $16 billion. This would be an increase of 170% compared to last year. Now, the lack of gains following a big report like that may be concerning for current investors. I know probably for the first half of this, you're like, I thought you guys didn't like NVIDIA. <laughs> it right. sounds like we're, we're pro on it. But the reason I, I'm concerned about the lack of the reaction is the valuation concern may have kept other investors away and led to some taking profits after the big gains this year. The company still trades at over 40 times January 2024 20, estimated earnings, which tells me the stock is priced for near perfection. If the company hits any speed bumps, the stock could tumble quickly. And, and speed bumps I'm talking about here is, you know, they're looking for 170% growth next quarter. If they come in at 150% growth, that would be a problem and the stock would likely sell off. So you just got to be careful where there's not as much maybe excitement from people that aren't invested in NVIDIA and the people that are invested in NVIDIA, well, maybe they'll start to look to take profits, which could put pressure on the stock as well. Yeah, and, and it's one that, you know, congratulations, somebody held it. And I got to say, NVIDIA's done a great job of pivoting from cryptocurrencies to gaming to AI. They seem to be have a good crystal ball of what's going to happen going forward. Um, so you, you got to give them a, a good pat on the back there. But gosh, there's just so many things that go wrong with this. Again, you come out with 150%, you know, increase like oh not good enough and the stock would fall and actually the stock has fallen as we said from the highs here yeah and i, I do wonder as well <clears throat> is you know it's great to kind of have that first mover advantage which they do but first what mover so mover. they're they're 
they're the leader in right. AI chips. There's no doubt about that. Right. But the problem is that they're still quite expensive, so it could take some time for these companies to adopt the AI chips, and it could give some of their competitors more time to catch up before AI is kind of more broadly accepted and really implemented in you know um, our day-to-day lives, I would say. Mm-hmm. So it, it could maybe hurt them that the chips are that expensive. And then, you know, what is high margins do creates competition because other competitors say i want those margins right and i could do that for a little bit less and still you know instead of getting a 50 percent margin i'll take a 40 percent margin yep. and video could come back and say well I, i'd take a 30 percent you know and right. that creates that competition which helps prices which could hurt nvidia's uh gains i would say over the next five years and also i have read a lot about uh, ai and that there are some legal problems with it that mm-hmm. are still there there's lawsuits out there fighting it um, and it's just um, not always the, the best here. So it's a very hot topic. Mm-hmm. And actually, Microsoft, I believe, went out quite a bit because of that. They pulled back, I believe, like 10, 15% since uh, the, the talk of AI for them. Yeah. I, it's, you know, hype never really lasts. Yeah. It's, you know, we've talked many times about different things like 3D printers that were going to be all the rage. We talked about the cannabis stocks when, you know, cannabis was going to get legal and it's going to be a huge thing. And, you know, AI could go the same route. And, you know, we've talked before as well about the, the dot-com boom is, you know, your companies like Cisco. I mean, Cisco actually did great during the tech bust yeah. in terms of a business <clears throat> performance, but their stock fell 90% <laughs> because they didn't do as great as yep. people thought they could. Right. And they they still do pretty well. When I, I mm-hmm. just saw they had good earnings and so forth on Cisco, but you just can't be on the top of the mountain forever. Yeah. And, 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 and NVIDIA. Great company, did great things, very impressive what they've done. Stock price, very impressive, but it's hard to keep hitting that home run every single time you come to the plate. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely something to, to keep an eye on here. Ask the Padres. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Lost last night, but. Yeah. That's why I said that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about streaming usage before we go here, because according to Nielsen Data, linear viewing, uh, which combines broadcast and cable, made up less than 50% of TV usage in the month of July for the first time ever. This comes as streaming usage saw a 25.3% increase in time compared to last year and occupied 38.7% of TV usage in the month. It looks like cord cutting has really continued to accelerate and it will likely continue to pressure broadcast and cable. And I got to admit, I cut my cord and I, I really liked cable a lot because the way it was laid out and so forth. But I finally said I, I moved like, oh, I'm not going to get cable. Um, I'm just going to stay with the streaming. I do think streaming is more confusing sometimes because, like, well, what do I watch? Do I watch Netflix? Do I watch Paramount? Do I, what am I going to watch here? And then did I watch that yet? Because with cable on the DVR, once you watched it, it was gone. Yeah. And it would save stuff for, for you. Well, now with the streaming, I kind of got to remember, did I watch that series? Because you get so involved in the series. I mean, I, I, it's confusing for me. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of options. and you know, Too I, many options sometimes. Too many <laughs> options, yeah. And it, it is interesting just to kind of see the, the space evolve and – you know, I, I think it is a potential winner here as I think, again, we talked about retail and having that direct-to-consumer channel and being able to kind of control your own destiny a little bit more. I think it could be a similar situation where the winners in streaming are really going to be winners and the losers are really going to be losers because you're not going to be able to get that subsidized, you know, benefit of, oh, I'll get a few dollars from the cable package, you know, to, to – produce bad content, essentially. And content is going to be the major thing for streamers. You've got to have good content that people want and keep producing that content. So I think having studios is very important. What you're putting out is very important. So um, there's only going to be, I think, a few players left uh, down the road on the streaming side. 
which generally happens. You get all these players coming in, and only the strong survive. Yep. So, all right. Well, there's a closing bell for. Th- Thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational person only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit the website smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. You can sign up for an appointment with us there as well. Thanks for listening to the Smart Investing Show. We'll be back next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. So amusing to think that I did all that. And may I say.